First Church Charlotte. God bless you. You may be seated. If you're with, visiting with us today, we're honored to have you. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, thank you for taking a chance on us. We want to host you well. We want you to feel at home. Um, we are striving to get the gospel right by loving God and by loving people. And so we're glad you're here to uh, help us uh, find a connection with people that we might give our testimony of God's good, goodness in our life. And so also, let's see, um, let's see what else uh, we have happening. Um, of course, as uh, Tiffany already pointed out, the event coming up Saturday is just, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's life-changing. I want to encourage you all uh, to be a part of that if you can. And um, we're just glad you're here. I'm preaching a message today with a very, uh, perhaps, strange title. You'll understand it once we show you a little video. But my title is this, Hevel, Hevel, Utterly Hevel. Now, you're thinking to yourself, hmm, no idea. That's all right. I'm going to show you a video, and then you'll understand a little bit better as we go into the scripture together. The book of Ecclesiastes, it's part of the Bible's wisdom literature, and it opens with this line, the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now in Hebrew, the word Kohelet means someone who has gathered people together, and in this case it's to learn, so it's often translated in English as teacher. And the teacher is said to be a son or a descendant of King David, and so there are different views about who this figure might have been. Many think that it refers to King Solomon, others to maybe one of the later kings of David's line, and still others think that it's actually a later Israelite teacher who has adopted a Solomon-like persona as a teaching aid. Whichever of these views is correct, the key thing is to recognize that the teacher is a character in the book and is different than the author of the book, who remains anonymous. So we do hear the teacher's voice for most of the book, but it's actually a different voice, the author, who introduces us to the teacher in the first sentence and then at the end concludes the book by summarizing and evaluating everything the teacher just said. So the author is someone who wants us to hear all that the teacher has to say and then help us process it and form our own conclusion. So what does the teacher have to say? Well, the author summarizes the teacher's basic message at the beginning and right at the end. And it's Hevel, Hevel. Everything is utterly Hevel. Now, most English Bibles translate this word Hevel as meaningless, but that doesn't quite capture the heart of the idea. In Hebrew, Hevel literally means vapor or smoke. And the teacher uses this word 38 times in the book as a metaphor to describe how life is, first of all, temporary or fleeting, like a wisp of smoke. But secondly, also how life is an enigma or a paradox. Like smoke, it appears solid, but when you try and grab onto it, there's nothing there. Yeah. So there's so much beauty or goodness in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Or we all have a strong sense of justice, but all the time bad things happen to good people. So life is constantly, it's unpredictable, it's unstable, or in the teacher's words, like chasing after the wind. 
Hevel. Now that's kind of a downer. So why is he saying all of this? The author's basic goal is to target all of the ways that we try to build meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God. And he lets the teacher deconstruct these. So the author thinks we spend most of our time investing energy and emotion in things that ultimately have no lasting meaning or significance. And he lets the teacher give us a hard lesson in reality. You can see this most clearly in the opening and closing poems, which focus first of all on time and then on death. So the teacher says, you can spend your whole life working and achieving because you think that makes your life meaningful. You should really stop and consider the march of time. For all of the human effort that takes place in the world, nothing really ever changes. So sure, we develop technology and we build nations that rise and fall, but go climb a mountain and see if it cares. It was there long before any of us and it will be here Really encouraging, after. isn't it? I mean, no one's even going to remember you or anything you did a hundred years from now, but that mountain, it'll still be there. Yep. And the ocean will still be breaking on the beach and the sun will still rise and set. And so time will eventually erase you and me and everything that we care about. And if that's not disheartening enough, right, let's the get teacher more. also can't stop talking about death that's all the way through the book, but especially in this poem near the end. He says, death is the great equalizer and it renders meaningless most of our daily activities. It devours the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor, no matter who you are, what you've done, good or bad, we're all going to die. Going to die. And it's inescapable. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I just wanted to encourage you this morning, and now that I've given you that encouragement, I just want to say, go forth, thou art healed. <laughs> um, we spent most of July in uh, answering this question, and when I say we, I mean uh, really the, uh, the prayer and the study of my heart and trying to convey uh, spiritual truth to all of you is to show how different Christian life is from uh, just secular mindsets and secular philosophy, how, how we are counterculture and how the New Testament actually gives us, tells us uh, the type of witness and testimony that we should have and do, how we stand out. Now, unfortunately, if you were to look at the church at large, you would find out that there are plenty of angry Christians, plenty of impatient Christians, plenty of short-suffering Christians, uh, plenty of grumpy Christians, plenty of judgmental Christians, but the actual witness, the actual sign that uh, Jesus told us we should have, that the apostles we should, should told us that we should have, which is to be long-suffering and patient and kind and to receive people, that is quite difficult. And so for us as believers to live counterculturally is for us to handle ourselves differently in the world in which we were placed and give a different testimony than the society in which we are, we are planted. Now, the process of going through the month of July led us into, uh, when I say us, I mean the study uh, and the, the prayer life that I am striving to have and following after the leading of the Lord, uh, led me into the, the wisdom literature of the Bible and how it changes the believer's life. The foundations, hear me when I say this, the foundations of the believer's life are utterly different than the secular person. What we build our hopes upon and what we strive to accomplish with our lives 
is utterly different than a life focused on self, a life focused on uh, the maximizing your entertainment, maximizing your experiences. You are called by Jesus Christ to live a different kind of life. You are called to be in this world, but not, say it with me, of this world. You are called to work in a workplace filled with a lot of people who do not or order their life by the premises of the scripture, and you are to be a light in that dark community. Now, I want to admit none of us succeed perfectly at that. All of us can do better. Can I have a big amen? Uh, But this is what we're striving for. This is the aspirations of our life. If you misunderstand aspirations, the aspiration of spirit-led life, then the only thing left is the life of a Pharisee, which is to always define godliness as a target you can hit, never as one that puts you on your face asking, seeking, knocking. That's the need of the Pharisee to create a substitute holiness, righteousness, godliness that they can hit rather than stand before the immensity of God, the immeasurable infinity of God and say, I am striving every day to be more like you. This is what real following after Jesus is uh, calling us to do and, and to be. This is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about a narrow way and a straight gate. The people listening to him are not unbelievers and that when he says that. He's talking to uh, the vast majority of them think they're already a, a religious. N- none of them really have a sense of saved or lost. They're just children of Abraham. What do you mean saved or lost? And yet Jesus is talking to highly religious people. He's talking to people who celebrate seven religious rituals or feasts every year. He's talking to people who came up through religious education, what schooling they had happened through the synagogues. They are their whole life made to study. Uh, The Jews accomplished the first literate society in all of human history. How did they accomplish that? By making their children read the law, by teaching their children to read the law. They became the first literate. These people do not think they are lost. They think they are so churchified that when they walk in the church, whether or not anyone is there, there's seven hallelujahs that are shouted in their direction. They are so religious, they are they squeak when they walk by, they're so religious. And Jesus says to those people, look, there's a way of serving God that's not going to be easy to find. It's, it's not a broad way, it is a narrow way. And so this is what I hunger for. What does it mean to authentically follow Jesus as opposed to just being a religious? Every society in human culture is religious. There's nothing unique about religion. And Jesus said, follow me. I have a different kind of story for you. This has led me uh, into these uh, wisdom uh, literature, Proverbs and um, Ecclesiastes, and to a lesser degree, Lamentation and um, also Psalms. But let me read Ecclesiastes 1 and 1. Um, I, the teacher was king of Israel, lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. 
I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it is all meaningless, like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Uh, Here is uh, this continuation of a rather sobering, heavy uh, scripture to read, a a heavy weight to carry in your spirit, a heaviness uh, to live your life with. And this, uh, if you're reflective at all, would make you think of that modern idea that we think of as nihilism. Let me just take a quick moment and talk about nihilism. Nihilism is a fancy um, philosophical word basically meaning that uh, people think there is no purpose in life. Nothing means anything. The only meaning there is is made up by you. They refer to this existentially. There's no reason why we are here. We are just here. And then they mean it in terms of truth. There is no truth. There is only many truths. And I have to ask myself the question uh, in this rather uh, heavy sermon I'm sharing with you today, why is nihilism so popular in our society today? Remember, this is the belief that nothing really means anything, so you shouldn't worry about it, or you should make up your own meaning. Why is nihilism so popular? Now, here is the thing. If you watch any show uh, that comes out of Hollywood, um, the main characters will always, almost always be nihilists. Why is nihilism just tearing everything down? Why does it seem so cool to the cool crowd? What is it about nihilism that is so attractive to a secular, humanistic society? Remember, uh, for many, many generations, if you were a part of Western culture, you were at least a believer, a deist. You may not be a practicing Christian, but you at least were a believer. And now uh, it's popular to be an unbeliever. What happened in our society where nihilism became so popular? I'm going to tell you what I think, and I have wrestled with this and wrestled with it. I'm not going to spend much time on it because at the end of the day, it's just my opinion and not much more. But I think uh, nihilism is popular in this society um, because it is so much easier to tear things down than to build anything of any value. It is so easy to tear things down. If you want to build something, it takes meticulous planning. It takes precise engineering. It takes careful execution. You have to assemble a lot of specialists. But to tear it down, you don't need any of those specialists. You just need heavy equipment and some dump trucks. You may have hired the best craftsmen. You may have brought in the best tradesmen. But to tear it down, you just need some heavy equipment and some dump trucks. Or you just get some demolition people and they can put a few charges and set their explosives and and bring down a building that took years, years or more, even decades, to build it. You can tear it up 
almost in a day, a week, very little effort to tear things down. So it is to anything you want to build, what do you value? No matter how hard you work, someone will come along and they'll find it much easier to tear it down than you found to build it. And this principle is true in every venue of human experience. If you build something, it's not even enough just to have your tradesmen, your craftsmen, your workers there. Someone had to make the steel you're going to build with. Someone had to engineer the concrete you're going to pour. There is layer, watch, after layer of effort, layer after layer of engineering, layer after layer of what an economist would call value added. Somebody had to show up on time and add value so then you would have something you could add value to. And the layers of our lives are built. And the layers of our future is built. And the layers, let's take it further, of our relationships are built. And the layers of the trust we have with other people is built. And then somebody, including we ourselves, can show up and in a few bad decisions, uh, burn it all to the ground. And so it is, whatever you believe about marriage, someone can come along and make you look silly. Whatever you believe about good parenting, someone can come along and mock your efforts. Whatever you believe about serving God and being created for a purpose, someone can rain on your parade. However carefully your national history has built a government, an economy, institutions, really all you need is a mob and some Molotov cocktails and you can burn it all down. It didn't get here fast. It took a lot of time. All you need is enough rage, enough mocking, uh, enough cynicism, and you can burn it all down. That's why Hollywood and all their leading characters are fascinated by the idea of uh, the nihilistic leading character because that's the easiest way to look smart is to trash anything anybody else is trying to build. And that's how the enemy of your soul works. He has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And all he does is stand on the periphery of your life and you try to do something good. You're, you're not perfect. You're, you're not where you ought to be. You're not trying to sing your own praises, but you tried and you worked and you sweated and you made some progress and hell shows up and they make a joke out of every tear you've cried. They make a joke out of every time you've got yourself up, dusted yourself up off and started all over again. And their secret is to tell you that it doesn't mean anything anyway. Christianity has a complete different way of looking at things. We look at the world as God has created it, and we say this is the most amazing, uh, intricate, complex system uh, of infinite diversity and ingenuity and whatever you want to think about. It did not accidentally get here. Somebody put it here. Yeah. 
Christianity comes along and it says, imagine you're walking down a beach and uh, there's nothing but desolate sand and uh, waves as far as you can see. And then you arrive at an area that is groomed. It is beautiful. It is uh, intricately detailed. And there's a beautiful clock right in the middle of it. And you look at the clock and the clock keeps every second. You don't think to yourself, oh, this just happened this way. You look around for who has been taking care of this place. You want to know who built the clock. You want to know how it just happened because chaos has a certainty to it all of its own. And whenever you see something amazing and beautiful and intricate, it makes you think somebody had a hand in the order that I see. God's testimony to your life, first of all, is the fact that you're here at all. The fact that you are able to sense his presence. The fact that you are able to wake up and perceive his goodness in your life. God created you. God is invested in you. And God wants to walk with you the rest of your life. Can I have a big amen from somebody? Oh, God, don't let us be cynical about this. Don't let us be relativistic about this. Don't let us somehow explain it away and and just try to uh, uh, knock it down. But let us see the testimony of your presence with us. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the earth you created shows your power, your glory, your creative genius. We worship you today in this house. And can you take a moment with me right now, church, and worship the Lord. Uh, there is a danger of seeking answers in, in anything uh, that is temporal like yourself. There are some people who seek answers uh, in the world around them, but there is a, a danger in that because you soon know that this world and all it contains will pass away. There is no longevity to it. And you, if you have any sense at all, you want to attach yourself to that which is eternal. You want to somehow build your life upon the rock of ages, cleft for me. You want to find something that's going to last longer than the last hobby you had in your in your personal life. You're, you're looking for something that's going to last longer uh, than just the change of uh, the fads, what is in and out. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, things come and go, and there's one change, and then it's gone. You don't want to build your life on something that temporal. You want to find something that l- is longer-lived than you are. Yeah. You want to find something that is able to obey, uh, abide the storms of time and able to hold you strong in the midst of the difficulties of your life. Uh, There is a danger in seeking answers anywhere else but in the the promise, the power, and the presence of God. Isaiah 8, chapter chapter number 8, verse number 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Does anyone hear me today? Should not a people inquire of their God? What's the biggest pain in your life? Should not you inquire of the Lord? What is the biggest blow you've taken to your confidence? Should not a people inquire of the Lord? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living, Isaiah asks? 
to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Where do we go to find firm foundations? What do we turn to to find firm foundations? Some people do it by idolizing individuals they respect. Uh, there may be celebrities that you respect and whatever they believe they has a profound influence influence on you. Well, the problem with that is um, they don't know anything more than you do. They just have uh, more fame and zeros on their bank account than you do. They don't know anything more. And if you follow the lives of celebrities, you will see evidence that they don't know anything more than you. And so there is a great folly in looking to a celebrity view of how to live uh, your life. Other people try to craft their own meaning, but here's the problem. The meaning you craft is at the same maturity that you're living at, and you're not fixed in time. And so in your 20s, when you craft your own meaning, you spend all your life changing, pursuing things. Hear me. I hope you hear me. You spend your 20s pursuing things you're going to think are dumb in your 30s. That's right. My God, preacher, you just better build here three tabernacles and take some time. The problem of making your own meaning is it is a testimony, testament not to the eternal. It's a testament to your maturity. And so in your 20s, you're like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to have this. I'm going to do that. In your 30s, you're like, God, I was stupid. <laughs> and then in your 30s, you're going to make meaning. And you're going to make meaning. You're going to make meaning in this and this and this and this. And you're in your 40s. And you look back and you're like, yeah, I climbed the ladder. The problem is I leaned it against the wrong wall. <laughs> I got to the top all right. Right to the top of some place I didn't want to be. When you make your own meaning, it's a testimony not to eternal things. It's a testimony to whatever level of maturity you're at at that moment. I, 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 let me pick on myself. When I was younger, I loved cars. I loved cars. I loved the engineering of cars. I, 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 I drove as nice cars as I could afford, and I was mad that I couldn't afford nicer ones. And then... Now, I just don't care that much about cars. I know it's terrible. I know, I know I shouldn't say these kind of things. You're thinking bad of me. I, I, just, I just don't care. I just don't care as long as, it, as long as I have air conditioning and it's mostly quiet. That's, now, if I don't have air conditioning, Jesus, take the wheel. That's all I got to say. It's too, it's too hot. I don't know what y'all did, but it's too hot. That's why I'm not wearing a jacket today. I'm not submitted enough to my wife to wear jackets in August. <laughs> if you form your own meaning, you'll always look back at the folly of your choices. There's a better way to live. I want to seek answers from God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own. Oh, I wish there were some church people here today. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding in all. Somebody say in all. Oh, we can do better than that. We got the pray through section right here. I need everyone else to help me right now. In all your ways, acknowledge him, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Hallelujah. Oh. Yes. 
Nihilism looks at the world and says nothing means nothing. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Vanity of vanity. It all means nothing. And I stand before the tide of this generation. They may not even say that, but they will live their lives as though nothing means nothing. That's why suicide is such a tragedy. They live in their life as though nothing means nothing. That's why so many people are, are, are ending their life through poor decisions with uh, substance abuse and drugs and the like. And it is a tragedy. Why? Because they are making this mistake of living as though nothing means nothing. I'm here to save you if God would help me from the lie of hell. Your life is a gift from God. The fact that you are here, the fact that he puts his hand upon you, you ought to give him the rest of your life. How are we going to do that? I, I want to challenge you, and I want to make a blatant appeal, and I'm almost done. In fact, musicians, you can come play and encourage me that I'm almost done, lest I get some other ideas and discourage everybody here today. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you, the beginning, the beginning to a different kind of life is going to come with you beginning a relationship with Almighty God. You've got, at, you, you have to, hear me, you have to turn your heart away from self and sin, and you turn have to turn your way toward God and purpose. You have to turn away from self and sin. That It doesn't start when you have enough theology memorized. That's not when it starts. Jesus calls his disciples by saying this, um, come and see. That's how Jesus calls his disciples. Uh, he, 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 he reaches out to them and uh, his speaking to them is, come and see. Now, he doesn't leave them there. Eventually, he's going to say to them some years later, come and die. <laughs> uh, some churches are great at saying, come and die. <laughs> and they're all very small, filled with very, very serious people who don't laugh in church very much. <laughs> and some churches are great at come and see. And those churches are always, they're much larger, but sometimes they struggle to have discipleship within the attraction. What we want to do is have a church that starts with come and see. Come on now. But then takes us to spiritual purpose, calling, and yes, sacrifice. And so this is the challenge um, of our life. Where does it start? Does it start with memorizing enough Bible? No, it starts with you somewhere in your life bowing your head and saying, Lord, I need you to help me down here. I would, like to, I would like to give you my heart. I would like to give you my life. Somewhere you have to cultivate. You have to begin and cultivate a spiritual relationship with God. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. James 4 and 8 Come near to God, and he will come near to you. King James, draw nigh unto the Lord, and he will draw nigh unto you. This is how all of our relationships with God starts. Simply a turning of our heart. Um, this is really what the gospel is, is, is all about. Uh, it, it, it's, you will learn a lot, yes, but it's going to happen as God leads you into all truth. That's not where you start. You start simply with turning your heart toward the things of God. So let me just review that real quick. I want to, I want to challenge all of you to 
start with repentance in your life. Uh, we never graduate above repentance. We always have a spirit of repentance in our heart. Jesus taught us to pray, and he put in that prayer that is a daily model for us to follow. He put in that forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. It is fundamental. We start We start with repentance. Uh, if you're here today or you're watching this online, you, you probably at some, t- some time in your life have had some exposure to uh, church and faith and the testimony of God. Um, you may be coming back to that. You may have drifted away from that. And you're, the reason why you're watching now or you're visiting today is because you're wanting to kind of draw back to that relationship with God. I, I want to encourage you in that regard. I want to, if at all possible, I want to give you another push of momentum in that direction because the beginning of our walk with God is simple repentance. It is simply believing that we need his goodness. We need his righteousness and we begin to seek him. All the other voices in your life have their own agendas. None of them died for you. There's only one who died for you. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. No greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. No greater love. Your life is really all you have at the end of the day to give. And God gave for you. And so we, as, as, as believers, we, we make up in our mind to stop seeking answers according to the wisdom of the flesh. And we start seeking a relationship with God. Uh, we pray. Uh, our church, we host, almost every day of the week, we host some way for you uh, to draw nigh unto the Lord and to learn his way in his word. Uh, we have prayer almost every day of the week early. We have Bible study almost every day of the week uh, in the evening. We, we try to create a continual opportunity for you to do what I'm trying to preach about here today, and that is this. I'm not looking for my answers anywhere else except from you, O oh God. And so I'm committed to a relationship with you. Wrong voices will always destroy. Let me uh, real quick give you some examples of this. There's an Old Testament story of a king by the name of King Rehoboam. And he was the son following on the throne after King Solomon. And when he inherited the throne, he was faced with a lot of requests from the people to lighten the heavy burden of taxes and labor. And his father had really, through force uh, and the strength of will, had moved the nation of Israel a tremendous way. Um, It was still 12 tribes. It was still 12 tribes. Um, That's important. I want you to remember I said that. It is at its apex of uh, regional power and influence. It is at its apex. It'll never have more regional influence uh, in ancient time than this moment right 
right here. And uh, Rehoboam gets it all. He receives it all as an inheritance. He is blessed beyond measure. He has all the accomplishments of his father in his hand. Uh, all, all he has to do is make some good decisions at this moment. And uh, there's a tremendous tension in the people right now because there is a great split between the haves and the have-nots, the, the wealthy and the poor. And he seeks advice from the wrong people, King Rehoboam does. And his uh, more elderly counselors uh, counseled him to, to be a servant to the people, to grant their request, to help them uh, kind of find prosperity, um, not just as a nation, but in their individual success. Um, and he had consulted with his other uh, counselors who were all younger rather than the older and the younger. They had different, as is often the case generationally, different advice. And uh, they told him, be harder than his father. Uh, demand more of his father. And, and Rehoboam goes uh, with the wrong advice. He follows the wrong direction. And he follows the advice of uh, the young. And that is, that is to be harder than his father. This destroys everything, everything Solomon had accomplished. Everything David has had accomplished is destroyed in this moment. We don't preach about it much. Maybe we should preach about it more. Every time David beat back the enemies in war and gathered the people in worship, all that is lost. Every time Solomon succeeded in diplomacy, that's all lost. What happens right now? Remember what I said that nihilism is popular because it's easier to tear things down than it is to build it up. It can take 40 years to build trust, and then you can burn it all down in just a, a, a weekend of bad decisions. You know what I mean? It's much harder to build than it is to destroy. Uh, Rehoboam burned it all down with this bad decision, and civil war breaks out among them, and uh, there is a split in the kingdom. And uh, are you ready for this? <laughs> um, the northern 10 tribes after the Civil War, separate, never to be rejoined, and then to be destroyed by the enemies and integrated into the nations around them, leaving only two tribes we know of as modern Jews. Only two. Ten out of twelve are destroyed because a young king listens to the wrong voices. What voices are you listening to? Uh, let me tell you another story that kind of flips the situation. You could say that Rehoboam listened to the young people um, rather than the elder people. Uh, well, let me tell you the story from history of Louis the Sixteenth of France. Um, he was the king over France uh, that really sparked the last the, the the revolution, the French Revolution, and um, it was a very similar situation. Great tension among the people, divisions between haves and have-nots. A lot of desperate people suffering to promote the indulgent lifestyle of a very few amount of highly um, wealthy people. And uh, he went again to his counselors, and it's the exact opposite. 
In his case, the younger counselors told him uh, to uh, try to help the people, try to be more open to the new political structure that was available. And uh, it was the elders now who told him to ignore the people they didn't know their place. It's the exact opposite of Rehoboam. Uh, but in this case, he listens to the older uh, conservative nobles who would not change and ignored the grievances of the common people because they're, grieve, they're common and didn't know their place. And this destroys everything that is built. It's easier to tear it down than it is to build it up. Let me tell you one more story. There's a young man uh, in the greatest kingdom of his generation living as a slave. And uh, there is a king in that kingdom who has a dream. And he's very upset by the dream. And he doesn't know the meaning of it. He goes to his wise men and astrologers and uh, they can't tell him. It makes him mad. He says, look, if you can't interpret it, we'll find out if you're worth anything. If you can't interpret it, we're going to kill you all. And uh, that's <laughs> despotism, if you didn't know what despotism is. And he uh, makes this pronouncement and uh, Daniel uh, does something very unique. Uh, he does something that <laughs> the other, other individuals aren't doing. He goes and prays and says, God, would you give me the revelation to the dream? What's the difference? He seeks God's word. He seeks God's revelation. He, speaks, he seeks God's voice. And Daniel goes before the king and says, stop, king. You don't have to kill anybody. God whom I serve has given me the interpretation to your dream. Three different Three different examples, three different stories. And it comes down really to this in our life. There's a lot of things I don't know, but I know where I'm going to go for my answers. Yes. There's a lot of things I can't explain, but I've made up my mind. I'm going to the presence of God and seeking my answers there. I don't know what you have done in your past. I don't know what the last few years of your life have looked like, but I want to plead with you today in the manner of an old-time preacher. I just, I just want to plead with you today. Turn your eyes toward Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of this world are going to dim. They're going to lose their attraction. Traction. You're going to see through uh, the mile-wide, inch-deep deception of marketing culture. And you're going to see that there is meaning in your life. You're going to see that God does have a purpose for you. You're going to see that there is a promise that tomorrow will be better than today. You're going to see that God loves you enough to get involved in your drama. God cares for you enough to meet with you wherever you are. Even if you're not here today, you can kneel down on the, at the couch you're sitting on. You can say, God, it's me. I'm asking for your help. I'm turning my heart toward you. And if you will seek him, you'll find him. And so let me invert the logic here and say this. If you're not finding God, it's because you're not seeking him. Stand with me all across the house. Lift your hands right now and say, I'm seeking you, Lord Jesus. I'm seeking you. Lord, we're not looking to the left or to the right. We are making a commitment today to step out of the meaningless, 
nihilistic, self-damaging, self-destructive philosophy of our generation. And we're saying, I choose you, Lord Jesus. I choose you, Lord Jesus. I am no longer simply going to try to please myself and serve myself. I am seeking you today. Oh God, I pray for every heart that's in this house today. I pray for every individual to be challenged to turn their heart back to you. Uh, They, at some day in their life, may have had a deeper relationship. They may have grown up in a Sunday school classroom, but they've allowed themselves to get far from you. I am appealing to them today, Lord. Would you stir their hearts? Would you stir their hearts? Would you awaken them to the deceitfulness of sin? Would you awaken them to the illusion of the pleasures of sin for a season? And would you challenge them to make a new commitment to you right now? In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I'm going to open this front up. I'd like to invite all of you who will to step out of the seat you're in. As you come, I want us all to pray a prayer of repentance together. As you step forward, I want us all to open our hearts and submit ourselves to God. Lord Jesus, we as a group of believers are standing humbly before you and we're asking you to wash the sins of our heart away in the merciful covering of Calvary's blood. We're asking for a newness in our heart. We're asking for spiritual foundations to be placed within us. Oh God, don't let us just go through a routine of uh, religion, but let us seek a relationship with you. Let us seek to walk with you. That means every day of the week we're spending some time in prayer. That means every day of the week we're referring and relating to some scripture in our life. Every day we're looking heavenward for an answer. Oh God, I pray that we could bring the deepest hurts of our heart to you. I'm praying we could bring the deepest pains of our life to you, oh God. Help us to see beyond our own capacity for self-deception and help us call upon you today. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name. Would you step out from wherever you are, find someone to pray with, find someone to take their hand, put a hand on their shoulder. Let's call out upon the name of the Lord here today, together in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.